Welcome to the April 1st, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we will learn more about the feasibility of combining IDH inhibitors with intensive chemotherapy in patients with newly diagnosed IDH mutant AML. Review a phenotypic and functional analysis of the inflammatory infiltrate in the Langerhans cell histiocytosis lesion and discuss the results of a phase 3 trial in patients with hemophilia A, evaluating prophylactic factor replacement therapy targeting two different factor 8 trough levels for prevention of bleeds. Our first topic is a study entitled Ivocidinib or Enacidinib Combined with Intensive Chemotherapy in Patients with Newly Diagnosed AML, a Phase 1 study, conducted by Eitan Stein from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York and Courtney DiNardo from University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston and their colleagues. Intensive Induction Chemotherapy with Cytarabine and Anthracycline, or 7 plus 3, remains the most effective treatment for adults with newly diagnosed AML who can withstand its toxicities. Recent modifications to this treatment backbone have improved event-free survival and overall survival in defined subsets of patients. Mutations in the isocitrate dehydrogenase 1 or 2 genes, also known as IDH1 and IDH2, are seen in approximately 20% of patients with AML. Mutant IDH or MIDH enzymes, catalyze the production of the oncometabolite D2-hydroxyglutarate, resulting in DNA and histone hypermethylation and consequent changes in gene expression and impaired cellular differentiation. Ivocidinib and enacidinib are targeted oral small molecule inhibitors of the MIDH1 and MIDH2 enzymes, respectively and are approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration as monotherapies for adults with relapsed or refractory AML and a susceptible IDH1 or IDH2 mutation. Responses in Phase 1 studies have been encouraging. In the current study, the authors hypothesized that combining MIDH inhibitors with intensive induction and consolidation chemotherapy would improve outcomes for patients with newly diagnosed AML with MIDH1 or MIDH2 mutations. They conducted a Phase 1 multicenter open-label study enrolling newly diagnosed patients with MIDH1 or 2 AML to evaluate safety and efficacy of this approach. Induction therapy consisted of continuous ivocidinib, 500 mg once daily, or enacidinib, 100 mg once daily, in combination with cytarabine and either donorubicin or idorubicin. A cycle of induction was permitted according to respective institutional practice. 60 patients were enrolled in the ivocidinib cohort, with a median age of 62.5 years and 93 patients in the enacidinib cohort, with a median age of 63 years. The MIDH inhibitors were well-tolerated, with safety profiles similar to those with induction and consolidation chemotherapy alone. The frequency of IDH differentiation syndrome was low, as expected, given the concurrent administration of cytotoxic chemotherapy. In patients receiving ivocidinib, 
the frequency and grades of QT interval prolongation were similar to those observed with ivocidinib monotherapy. Increases in total bilirubin were more often observed with enosidinib, likely related to its known potential to inhibit UDP glucuronosyl transferase, but this side effect did not appear to have significant clinical consequences. In patients receiving ivocidinib or enosidinib, end-of-induction complete remission rates were 55% and 47% respectively, and 72% and 63% when also including patients who had a CR with incomplete neutrophil or platelet recovery. Moreover, in patients with the best overall responses, 39% of those receiving ivocidinib and 23% of those receiving enosidinib had clearance of mutant IDH by digital polymerase chain reaction. Both ivocidinib and enosidinib-treated patients had 12-month survival probabilities of more than 75%. This is notable and promising as survival rates have been historically low, especially for older AML patients. Survival follow-up is ongoing to determine if these rates can be maintained over time. In summary, the combination of ivocidinib or enosidinib with intensive induction and consolidation therapy was well-tolerated in patients with newly diagnosed MIDH-AML. And the clinical activity in this Phase one trial was encouraging. The benefit of adding a MIDH inhibitor to induction and consolidation chemotherapy, followed by single-agent maintenance therapy for patients with newly diagnosed MIDH-AML, is now being further evaluated in an ongoing randomized Phase three international trial. In their commentary on the study, Andrew Way from Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, Australia, and Naval Daver from the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas, suggest that while the next steps for targeting IDH seem straightforward, recent studies have raised questions in regard to response rate and overall survival. For example, although improvements in response rates and event-free survival were seen combining enosidinib and azacitidine as first-line therapy for AML patients unfit for intensive chemotherapy, overall survival was not improved. Thus, in order to further evaluate the efficacy of these treatments, phase 3 randomized studies of IDH inhibitors are much needed. Next, we will discuss a study entitled Overcoming T-Cell Exhaustion in LCH. PD-1 blockade and targeted MAPK inhibition are synergistic in a mouse model of LCH. By Amal Sengal and colleagues from Texas Children's Hospital and Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. Langerhans cell histiocytosis, or LCH, is an inflammatory myeloid neoplastic disorder characterized by a variable number of myeloid cells with activating MAP kinase mutations and an inflammatory infiltrate. In LCH lesions, a median of 8% of the cells are Langerhans cells, which are CD207-positive dendritic cells, and an inflammatory infiltrate typically constitutes the majority of cells in the lesion. Enrichment of regulatory T-cells in LCH lesions and increased expression of programmed death ligand 1, or PDL1, on Langerhans cells have been described. However, the mechanisms orchestrating recruitment and activation of the inflammatory infiltrate and the role of immune cells in LCH pathogenesis are not known. LCH remains a challenging clinical condition, and treatment remains suboptimal. 
due to the rarity of the disorder and lack of understanding of pathogenic mechanisms. Current therapy is risk-stratified based on extent of disease. Those with multi-system disease or high-risk system involvement require systemic chemotherapy. Despite some progress, disease reactivation rates remain above 30% and mortality rates for LCH patients with organ dysfunction may reach 20%. Long-term sequelae of disease are also significant. The identification of universal MAP kinase pathway activation in LCH paved the way for treatment with targeted inhibitors. While response to BRAF or MEK inhibitors are generally excellent, recurrence of disease upon discontinuation of therapy is almost universal. The dramatic clinical effects of disinhibiting cytotoxic T-cells in adult cancers has highlighted the critical role of the immune system in regulating tumorogenesis. However, the clinical potential for immune-directed therapies in LCH has not yet been investigated. Here, Sangal and colleagues used cytometry by time of flight, or CYTOF, coupled with functional assays to more thoroughly characterize the inflammatory infiltrate in LCH patient samples and to explore whether combining MAP kinase inhibitors with checkpoint blockade would be of benefit in a preclinical mouse model. As Michelle Hermiston from the University of California at San Francisco summarizes in commentary on the study, the authors confirm that the LCH CD207 positive cells in LCH lesions express high levels of PDL1 and that the inflammatory infiltrate is comprised of dendritic cells, myeloid derived suppressor cells, and T cells. Detailed analysis of the T cell compartment revealed skewing toward CD4 positive T cells and regulatory T cells relative to CD8 positive T cells. Both CD4-positive and CD8-positive T-cells exhibited signs of T-cell exhaustion with increased expression of inhibitor receptors including PD-1, TIM-3, and LAG-3, decreased cytokine production upon stimulation, and decreased effector function. Importantly, the exhausted phenotype could be reversed with PD-1 blockade. The mechanistic basis for the preponderance of exhausted T-cells remains unclear although chronic antigen stimulation by LCH cells themselves and or immune-suppressive microenvironment mediated by infiltrating myeloid-derived suppressor cells, regulatory T-cells, or the LCH cells themselves are all possibilities. To begin to evaluate if checkpoint blockage might have clinical utility, the authors moved to a BRAF V600E mouse model of systemic LCH. After documenting that it recapitulated the inflammatory infiltrate and exhausted T-cell phenotype seen in human LCH lesions, they randomized cohorts of mice to treatment with MEK1 inhibitor, trametinib, or checkpoint inhibitors, PDL1 or PD1. While PDL1 blockade had minimal effects, monotherapy with anti-PD1 or trametinib resulted in partial responses. Interestingly, Trametinib led to loss of the LCH cells, but increased the number of infiltrating CD3-positive T-cells. In contrast, anti-PD-1 resulted in a significant decrease in infiltration with lymphoid cells, with a nominal effect on myeloid cells. Notably, combined therapy with trametinib and anti-PD-1 synergistically decreased disease burden. In summary, 
This study demonstrates that LCH lesions are infiltrated with exhausted and dysfunctional T cells, and that immune checkpoint inhibition decreases disease burden in a preclinical mouse model of LCH and augments responses to MEK inhibition. The authors suggest that the synergistic impact of combined MEK inhibition and checkpoint blockage represent a novel therapeutic strategy that merits clinical development. The revised conceptualization of LCH as an inflammatory myeloid neoplastic disorder driven by pathologic MAP kinase activation in myeloid precursor cells offers an opportunity to move treatment for LCH beyond empiricism to rational risk-based strategies. In her accompanying commentary, Hermiston notes a shortcoming of the study was the lack of survival analyses in the preclinical mouse model. Studies looking at optimal length of therapy to prevent recurrence or whether combination with traditional chemotherapy is beneficial are also needed. However, the study highlights the potential value of targeting not only the pathologic LCH dendritic cell, but also the abnormal microenvironment in which it resides. She concludes that clinical trials evaluating dual checkpoint blockade with MAP kinase inhibition are therefore warranted. Our final topic is a report entitled Ruri Octocog Alpha Pegol PK Guided Prophylaxis in Hemophilia A Results from the Phase 3 Propel Study by Robert Klamroth from Vivantes Klinikum Friedrichshain in Berlin, Germany, and colleagues. Standard Factor 8 prophylaxis for treatment of hemophilia A is based on patient weight, severity of Factor 8 deficiency, and bleeding patterns such as location, extent of breakthrough bleeding, and joint status. Treatment dose and frequency are adjusted according to the patient's clinical response. The factor 8 concentrate dose required to achieve a desired plasma factor 8 level varies among individuals due to differences in pharmacokinetic profile of factor 8 coagulant activity. An individualized approach to prophylaxis to optimize treatment and improve outcomes takes into consideration a patient's pharmacokinetic profile, phenotypic bleeding pattern, and other factors, such as perceived risk of injury-related bleeds. Ruri-Octocog Alpha-Pegol is an extended half-life factor VIII product with an attached polyethylene glycol group and has a published half-life of 14 to 16 hours. In this Phase three randomized clinical trial, Klamroth and colleagues evaluated the safety and efficacy of pharmacokinetic-guided prophylaxis with Ruri-Octocog Alpha-Pegol. The study included male patients with severe hemophilia A who ranged in age from 12 to 65 years, with a median age of 29. All participants had an annualized bleeding rate, or ABR, of greater or equal to 2 and had received prior factor VIII treatment. 115 subjects receiving the study drug were randomized to one of two target trough level ranges, 1 to 3% or 8 to 12%, to prevent bleeding. Dosing regimens used to achieve these target trough levels were derived from individual pharmacokinetic testing. The treatment-adjusted period was in the first six months. The primary endpoint was the proportion of patients with hemophilia A with no bleeding events, including spontaneous and injury-related bleeds, during the second six months of treatment. Dosing frequency and consumption varied widely in each arm, with overlapping ranges. 
To achieve a target trough level of 1 to 3 percent, 39 percent of subjects required treatment that was more frequent than standard twice-weekly dosing. To achieve the 8 to 12 percent trough target, 12 percent required daily infusions, and the majority required every-other-day infusions. The results indicated that pharmacokinetic guided prophylaxis was achievable and decreased bleeding in both arms although fewer bleeds were seen in patients where a trough level of 8 to 12 percent was targeted. Safety profiles in both arms were similar. These results show that elevated factor 8 troughs can increase the proportion of patients with hemophilia A with zero bleeds, and also emphasize the importance of personalized treatment. The authors note that the study's findings are limited by the inclusion of only adolescents and adults with histories of annual bleeding rates of greater or equal to 2 and only patients with hemophilia A who were receiving prophylaxis. According to Dr. Klamroth, these limitations may reduce the generalizability of the findings to patients with a history of lower ABRs. Christine Kempton from the Hemophilia of Georgia Center for Bleeding and Clotting Disorders of Emory in Atlanta points out that the study makes the case that patients will need factor VIII replacement regimens that are more intensive than the current standard of care and that individualized treatment is optimal. However, challenges remain. These include higher costs of new and more intensive treatments, the lack of randomized clinical trial data that compares new products to existing standards of care, and finally, even if a zero-bleed state is achieved, patients will still suffer from joint disease, disability, and chronic pain. These realities underscore the need for not just more convenient treatments, but better ones. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.